The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Things We All Carry. This week I sit down with Jason from Virginia. He's retired from the fire service after a 20-year career as a paid firefighter with seven years as a volunteer prior to that. Jason was a lieutenant in my department before a DUI and his decision that day resulted in him losing his job. Jason's story doesn't end there as he just announced his 1800th day of sobriety. He's moved on from the fire service now and works in the behavioral health world using his own experience to help others. A huge thanks to him for coming by and sitting down for two plus hours to talk with me. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. But he and I talked about psychedelics yesterday, and that's, he's a big proponent of it as well. And I'm a huge thing. That ketamine therapy yeah. is very similar to EMDR in the way that it picks up on the little things. Yeah. And it, it unlocks that trauma, and it unsticks the thinking. Yeah. So I think that's fascinating. Feeling comfortable? Yep. All right. So what I will do is just take these notes. I'll read this intro, try not to botch it like I normally do, and yeah, whatever. I can always change it if I have to. Absolutely. All right, joining us today is Jason. He's a retired firefighter from the Northern Virginia area. He has 27 years of total service, 20 as a career firefighter, and seven prior to that as a volunteer. He has a very interesting story, and some of you are going to recognize parts of his story. Some of you probably relate to a lot of his story, but I'm going to let him run with it for right now, talk about some family life and where he came from, and then we'll get into his fire service stuff. So how are you doing, Jason? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, my story is definitely a very dynamic one. I'm excited to share it with everybody. I was born in May 9th, 1978, back in the good old days. I spent the first 12 years of my life in Arlington County. That's my mom and my dad. We live in and my brother, we lived in an apartment in Arlington. My dad was an Arlington County firefighter. I guess that's where I first got my interest as a young kid running around his fire station. I still remember going to the snack machine with the guys at the fire station, then loading me up with candy so I'd be all spun up for my dad. Great guy. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, my first couple of years I spent in Arlington when I was Around four or five, my parents divorced. My dad actually left the Arlington County Fire Department, went over to DC police. A drastic change there, but yeah, that's <laughs> changing teams right there. Yeah. But I remember a couple of reasons why he told me he left the fire department was that of course, politics, everything else, but you would think DC police has a lot of politics. But uh he didn't find it intellectually challenging enough for him so he's a very smart guy i don't know what happened to my brother and i but <laughs> he was some people get dropped on their heads it's not a good deal <laughs> yeah absolutely i was definitely dropped on my head a few times but growing up i remember having a great childhood my mom remarried 
probably a couple of years after that. I loved Arlington. I played soccer. I was very into playing sports, running the streets with my friends and everything. And I guess that's what brings me to the first trauma that I can recall in my life was back when I was five years old. I was out, I think, tossing a football with a friend of mine and a guy came around and hey said i have something to show you and he was probably about in his late teens early 20s and i never met the guy before and but when five years old you're you have that sense of stranger danger but you're still not really at the age to really contemplate that at the right time i would say you're still very trusting of course yeah absolutely and he lured me to the backside of the apartment at five years old back then you were cool to run the streets you had no problems i wasn't really running the streets i was really confined to the courtyard of the apartment complex but to me back then that was like a large kingdom he said they had something to show me on the backside of the apartment and when I went back there with him. He said, I need you to stand against the wall. And I was very confused by this. I was like, what do you need to show me? And he then, I remember him holding me against the wall and trying to pull down my pants. And I started screaming. That's when I knew stranger danger was going on because this dude is trying to pull down my pants. And even at five years old, this isn't right. Never met you before. So I started screaming at the top of my lungs and he's like, I need you to be quiet. I started screaming louder. And he's like, I'm a doctor. I need you to be quiet. I started screaming louder. Then he proceeded to beat the ever living crap out of me and knock me unconscious. I remember coming to, and he was gone. I think as I was laying there, as everything was dark and it's like almost in the movies, <laughs> everything was darkening and I could see him run away. I immediately ran and told my parents, they called the police. Police then came and tried to show me a whole bunch of sketches and stuff and, or not sketches, but pictures of people that they thought could have committed this crime because I guess there was a rash of this going on in the area. And they, to my knowledge, they never did catch the guy. Yeah, it's a tough job for a five-year-old to do. You just got the shit kicked out of you. And <laughs> yeah. now they're like, tell me who it was. Yeah. And you, obviously, to be able to remember that would be an amazing thing. But yeah. not amazing thing, but it would be a powerful thing to be able to remember that as a five-year-old. Yeah. To remember the face. It was pretty wild. And I think that it set me up for my future. That day set me up. As far as being able to trust people in future relationships. And subconsciously, I was very guarded anytime I met anybody. Guarded with strangers. So I think my social skills might have been... No, I wouldn't say delayed, but... it was hampered by that more than I had known throughout my you know, growing up, my teenage years. And I guess I was in fourth grade. Yeah, fourth grade, the beginning of my fourth grade year, my parents, my mom and my stepfather elected to move us down to Prince William County. And I wanted nothing to do with it. Time <laughs> life, it was a sticks. I absolutely hated the idea of moving down to Prince William. But quickly, when after moving, 
down, I started to like the idea a little bit more because we had a pool in the backyard and I didn't, I would say, have the best, I know we're probably have to cut this part out, but, or reset it, but I enjoyed the pool part, (laughs) but it was very hard for me to make friends when I went down there because I already established my core set of friends in Arlington moving down here. I guess it's hard for any kid, but I think it might've been a little bit harder for me. I remember the first kid I met walking to school. My school was literally through the woods around the corner and I was very guarded and I was very quiet going there, but I quickly got involved with the local soccer teams. I think my parents saw the necessity of giving me back to the norm because it, it was a difficult transition. I think for anybody at any age, just uprooting and changing your whole environment can be pretty difficult. You mentioned the, you said fifth grade, correct? Yeah. Fourth, fifth grade. Fourth, fifth grade. So that parallels with my own experience because I'd left, I left Tacoma park when I was end of fourth grade, early fifth grade, and I moved to Florida and, oh, wow. and it's the same thing. It's an awkward time of your life to yeah. move because you have established these friendships yeah. and you've, you think, okay, these are the people I'm going to hang out with for the rest of my life. Yeah, exactly. And then all of a sudden you move to another state and all of a sudden you're the outsider and you're the odd one. And yeah. I actually recently wrote about it and it's what led to my own relationship with alcohol actually. So that's side note. So I I can, I know exactly what you're feeling there. I experienced the same kind of transition. And I think it actually, that transition foreshadowed a lot of problems I had with change later on in life, whether it be through the fire department work or job assignments. But I quickly got back into soccer, start making friends. My brother, who is three years older than me, was making his own way as well. When he was 16, he joined the local fire department. And I thought that was so cool. I was like, man, I want to be like my brother. Even though him and I fought like cats and dogs, we (laughs) hated each other. A lot of the guys have been around for a long time. Can recall December 1st, 1990. At approximately 10 a.m., I, my brother and I got in a fight, and he actually pinned me down one of the few times he actually could pin me down. And I got mad, and I tossed a can of beefaroni at his head. <laughs> so, <Dead> weapon. <laughs> yeah, it split his head open pretty good and got 18 stitches. But the local volunteer fire department came, took him to the hospital, and some of the guys that actually ran the call, I still speak to till this day and they recalled the situation but anybody out there listening that knows my brother asked to see the scar (laughs) but so my brother joined the fire department and i felt like i really wanted to follow the same steps i was still playing soccer but i saw how happy he was and how he was getting more and more friends and he was bringing those friends over to the house. And I looked at all, all these guys as my big brothers that he was bringing over. So around my 16th birthday, I joined the, actually on my 16th birthday. Exactly. I was accepted in, into the Dale city volunteer fire department on my 16th birthday. I was voted into the Dale city volunteer fire department. I was so excited. I started doing all the core classes 
to get certified, to be able to, to get onto a duty crew and everything else, which wasn't very much back then. I think we needed CPR and like regular first aid. And then I was assigned to a duty crew and it was so cool. My first duty crew that I was assigned to, I had a military office, an army officer as my captain. And he was very structured. He told you what he expected. And it's one of the biggest mentors I still have to this day. The driver of our on our crew was what you would have thought a fire engine driver should have been. A kind of a rotund Italian could cook all kinds of food. Kind of like you see in the movie Backdraft. I was going to say, I could see the cigar hanging out of his mouth right now. Yeah, exactly. A real salty dog. He was rough on me, but it was much needed. I needed some discipline and structure because I was just a, a wild kid back then. And I also had my brother's best friend who was assigned to the crew, who was assigned to me as my mentor at the station to show me the ropes. So I, I remember just how much of a family it felt like I was getting into at mm -hmm. that time because at that time period, my, my family dynamic was a little rough. I was trying to come into my skin with my mom and my stepfather. My stepfather was a retired army, three tours of Vietnam, very strict, didn't have the best communication skills about his feelings or anything like that. We butted heads a little bit, but not horribly. I then, in my relationship with my father, he, my father still lived in D.C. and worked a lot, was very good. We saw him like every other weekend and stuff like that. So uh, as much as he could, it was as busy he was. He was in my life, but at that time, my my family dynamics started to go down or a little bit. Because I think everybody at their teenage years kind of the struggle between trying to find your way and your, what your parents think you should be doing. Yeah. And it's a naturally rebellious point in yeah. anyone's life. Yeah, absolutely. So I was going through all the volunteer firefighter classes throughout high school. And the first day of my senior year, I had a big fight with my mom and she kicked me out of the house. So here I am, first day of senior year, basically kicked out of the house, but I had, I moved across the street to the neighbor's house. So not too far from the house. <laughs> not too far from the house. Yeah. So very much, I felt alone back then. I went through some struggles the first part of my senior year, and I decided to enlist in the in delayed entry program with the Navy. I signed up, went down to MEPS, did all that stuff. And probably March of my senior year, my mom asked me to move back in. I moved back in. So you spent August to March. Yeah. And so uh, laying on somebody's floor. Homeless. Yeah, basically. I moved back in probably in March. And within a couple of weeks, my stepfather, real strong, three tours in the military or the, in Vietnam, army guy, had a, a couple strokes. And he went from the strongest guy I know to the mentality of a t teenager. It was very uh, difficult to watch. At that time, I had to step up. I missed a lot of school by taking him to the Walter Reed to be seen by neurologists and all kinds of stuff. 
My family dynamic got pretty bad. There was a lot of drinking going on within my family in front of me. I wasn't a big drinker back then. So I mean, who was drinking? Probably just about everybody that okay. I knew. And it, really on my mother's side, I there there was a lot of drinking. Any type family function, a lot of people were drinking. The I know my mom was drinking a lot, but at that point in time, I didn't really care for it. I was more into being healthy, going to the calls, riding on the fire truck. That was my out. That was my escape through all the stuff that was going on in my house and everything else. That was my escape. I ended up having to back out of going into the Navy because everything that was going on with my family, I actually had a very young sister at the time that needed her brother around because the parents weren't getting along. My sister is 12 years younger than me. That's quite the age difference. Yeah. Here I am 18 and she's six. It was just a lot of different dynamics that came into play for what made me stay. I, I just didn't feel like it was the right time to leave. So like I was saying, my escape was riding on a fire truck from the age 16 on, I was there almost as much as I could almost every night. Sometimes once I graduated high school, I was really there almost every night and trying to do a regular job, take fire department classes and everything. It was draining. Yeah. It would uh, consume most of your life. Yeah. But I have to say that time period, even though it was difficult on different aspects was pretty cool because I had that out of the fire department and we ran a lot of fire, a whole lot of fire, not the stuff that you see today. We're rolling up on stuff almost all the time, at least once a week. So the accidents, car accidents were wild. 95 didn't have the complete bumper to bumper traffic. It has constantly right now, not 66 over near like Falkir County and stuff like that, more rural areas. It was, it moved at that speed more often than not. So we were getting some hellacious wrecks. I was seeing a lot of wild things, stuff that anybody from the age 16 on, it would mess you up pretty bad. This has been a theme and we talked about it the other yeah. day when we discussed it, this young volunteer time frame is so damaging to a mind, 16 to Oh, 25 is such a period where you're still impressionable, but you think you're invincible. And it's that invincibility that, that fails you at times. Absolutely. I remember 16 years old doing CPR on an infant. I remember the mother's screams. No 16 year old should be doing CPR no. on a baby. I should be out going to prom. I didn't go to prom. I rode on the heavy rescue that night and decided that that was, would be a more fun of an evening than me ha having to hang out with kids my age. Hmm. I was a, a, around a lot of older people that made, helped, that made you grow up faster. But the night of prom, I, instead of hanging out with those kids, I was cutting a kid out of a car that I knew from school that had passed away. So that's impactful. Yeah. Yeah. My time as a, a volunteer, I have no regrets. Met some of the best firemen that you'll ever know. It was different times back then. And I think people pre 9-11 volunteered for different reasons. Okay. After 9-11 is more like the cool thing to do, <laughs> but it was more to protect your community and everything else like that. Everything was fun and games until November 19 or 25th, 1998. 
Christmas morning. That morning changed my life. I remember I was getting up. It was the getting up from the fire station to go home to open Christmas presents with my little sister at the time. She was eight years old. It actually ended being the last time my mom, my stepfather, my sister, and I were together. My brother just got back from the army and I didn't really talk about that part and the impact of my brother leaving for the military and leaving me alone to take care of all the family stuff. I was getting all my stuff packed up to go home to open Christmas presents with my sister in it. And I remember the call being dispatched and I've never heard a structure fire come out with the words with confirmed entrapment, possible entrapment. I'm pretty sure it came out as confirmed entrapment as a follow-up right after the initial dispatch. So already, already I got the adrenaline's kicking. I was only 20 years old, just a couple months into my 20s, and we're going down the road. It was so cold out, snow all over the ground. And people are giving, the dispatchers giving updates that we have confirmed entrapment, so on and so forth. And just running through my head at that age, I didn't know what I was about to roll up on. I've been on a ton of fires beforehand, but everything was perfect. Like the bird building, you pull a line, the fire goes out. <laughs> but we rolled up on this fire and it was mass chaos at the townhouse complex. All the neighbors were out front and had fire blowing out the front door of this townhouse so intensely. It had blue flame coming. I just remember this really bright, like blue orange flame coming out of the place. Me and my officer got up, start trying to get up the hill to the townhouse. And I remember falling down a hundred times <laughs> just because it was so slippery and the neighbors helping picking me up. I see that there's a guy in the front yard who's badly burnt and looks like covered in blood. Apparently, before we rolled up, he got blown out the front bay window trying to escape the house. So everything was in slow motion, and I could still see the first line trying to go through the front door. And there was a hole burnt through the floor in the basement. The officer almost fell through the floor it just like any fire is mass chaos but this was different like even talking about it now i could smell it and i could feel the cold and it just it brings a lot of stuff back but i ended up on a hose line going through the rear basement and i remember there's fire everywhere i remember the panel box arcing from the water being sprayed on it I knew everything was really bad, but I still thought to myself, there's people inside here. I'm going to get them out. This is what we do. We're going to get them out. So eventually they start deck gunning the townhouse. Multiple deck guns were going on. It was older style construction. So it was really all cinder block, but it wasn't the exposures really weren't an issue. It was a burn building in itself. Uh, not all of us had radios back then, so I didn't hear any type of radio call or deck on it or anything like that. And the floor started to collapse on top of us. As we had a guy from another unit say, hey, they're deck on it. Yeah, everybody needs to back out. We backed out and everything just crashed from the first floor down to the basement. Smoke started to clear. We fought the fire for a little bit longer. Smoke started to clear. And then I look in the sliding glass door 
and I see what looked to be a mannequin laying on the ground. That was the first victim that we found. As the day went on, we found four kids and two adults. So it was, fire department became very real for me back then, at that point in time. It was interesting the way I processed it or lack of processing it. It was more of after we were there for 12 hours on the call. I went home. I remember opening up a can of beer. I'm underage, <laughs> but there was a can of beer in the house and I laid in the bathtub and drank that can of beer. And then, uh, I met up with my buddy that was on the fire with me. I went over to his house. I didn't really have much of a Christmas and sat and tried to process with him. What the heck just happened? You're not supposed to see dead kids especially on christmas and so we talked it out and the next day morning we both got back on the fire truck and they tried to have the like a critical incident stress debriefing with us the next day but in the middle of that debriefing we got hit on another working fire so here i am less than a day finding another fire that was the busiest time I ever had in my life. We had, I've never had so much fire from Christmas of 1998 till Super Bowl Sunday of 99. We were running so much fire and it took my mind off of it. At that point in time, around that that's, uh, 1999 time frame, my mom left my stepfather. It was too much for the family to handle because he was so sick. She, she went off and did her own thing took my sister. My stepfather moved down to Richmond. Some of uh, my family were able to set him up with an apartment. He was living a very good life considering his challenges. He was able to get a job and do all kinds of stuff then. But essentially I was living at the fire station and the guys that worked at that station is like, man, you got to try to get a job here. So I, eventually applied and was starting to go through the process. And back then the process was very long. They didn't hire very many people. I spent almost every day at the fire station until one time I was able to go to Ocean City with a bunch of friends. Right? It was probably about a year or two after the Christmas fire and probably about six months before I got hired. And we were out drinking on the boardwalk naturally yeah, having a good old time and i remember going on this haunted house ride at ocean city and i remember all of a sudden i start blacking out and i remember being walked from that ride back to the hotel virtually puking in every trash can then all of a sudden something snapped at me and i broke down about the christmas fire it took me two years, essentially, to break down, to cry that I saw multiple dead kids on Christmas morning. And I have to assume there was something in that haunted house it that very, brought it back. It had to have been. The last thing I remember was there's this part of where it got really dark and it felt like you were going really dark, really like an orange light, but 
you were going in like circles. It made you feel like you were going upside down, but you weren't going upside down. You're actually going straight. So you're like in a tube that just was going in a circle. You're going straight, but you felt like you were going upside right. down. Almost like a kaleidoscope. Yeah, exactly. It was pretty trippy. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently I was unmanageable. I was that upset. I was having flashbacks, like very much felt like I was there and they were able to finally calm me down and I woke up the next morning with a lot of regret, very upset that what had happened, I didn't really understand what had happened, but I essentially just moved on from it. Didn't think I needed to get any help or therapy or anything like that. From the incident at the beach. Yeah. Okay. So you did that. You had to break down. Yeah. You wake up the next morning and you kind of shake it off. You shake it off. I figured that that's what I needed to do to get through that. And I'm good to go now. Eventually I got hired with the fire department in 2001. And I loved it. I loved every second of it. I loved the structure the recruit school brought me. I was still having a lot of family issues. My brother was still volunteering at the time. And so I got hired before him, six months before him. So I could call him rookie when he eventually <laughs> got hired. But we, I, I can remember every Friday night after recruit school, we'd go out, have a couple of drinks. And I remember everybody saying, being so proud or uh, uh, look up to me because I could put away more beer than everybody else. <laughs> so that's, we were drank every Friday night and that, that time period was, I would have to say it was the best time because I made some lifelong friends in recruit school where we ended up graduating 10 people, a small core group of guys that was very close. I then got out of recruit school, got assigned to the Lake Jackson area, pretty slow area. I had at that time, one of the best lieutenants you could ever ask for best crews was having it. It was really making my way trying to become part of the crew and everything else. And I had a lot of challenges because people knew me as a volunteer. And so I had to, really to to get out of the shadow of being a volunteer and now being a paid guy it was a hard transition for me i did everything i could to fit in and anytime anybody was going out drinking i would go out drinking with them and life was good i was very active in the union and all that and in 2003 i spent the day running calls all day long. That night was a union meeting. I went to the union hall and I hadn't had anything to eat all day because we were literally from call to call, which was my fault. But looking back at it, you always pack a bag or something to... Yeah, you say it's your fault, but it, there are those days where you, you forget or at least the nutrition part falls by the wayside. Yeah. So I got to the hall and being the young guy, uh, the newer guy, with everybody i wanted to help out any way i could because they were having a special guest that meeting so they asked to see if i could cook food for everybody on the grill and then come in after i was done and i could sit in on the meeting while i was cooking i was constantly being handed drinks and i wasn't saying no to those drinks either because not having anything in my stomach i was like okay i might have grabbed a chip here and there but but nowhere near enough to counteract the, the alcohol. <laughs> no, not at all. I, Lord knows how much I had to drink. But when finally was done cooking, I got into the meeting. All the food was gone. So the only thing left to do was drink. <laughs> and I kept on drinking. And eventually, 
apparently I left the union hall and I don't remember anything until I started to come to, I left the union hall. Apparently I drove past where my apartment was at. I have no idea where I was going, but I came to because I heard sirens that had flashing lights in my rear view mirror. So I pulled over, I thought it was a fire truck. And next thing I hear is a tap on my window and I have a, an officer with a gun drawn on me because apparently I was driving down the street on two rims, driving all over the place and the officer didn't know what to expect. And apparently I wasn't responding to the felony stop at that time. I can't blame the officer, but I was like, I remember him taking me out of the vehicle, it being very kind to me. He was like, what's going on? I was like, nothing, everything's cool. And he said, why are you driving on two tires? How much you had to drink? I said, probably not enough. And he asked me where I was coming from. And I told him some restaurant. I didn't tell him the union hall. Which by the way, probably not enough is probably not the right answer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just highlight <laughs> that for a second. Exactly. Yeah. So I was not in the right mind at all. The officer took me to the side of the vehicle and I tried to administer the, the field sobriety test, which I failed miserably. I was placed under arrest and my brother came and picked me up from the local police station, took me home. Next morning I woke up, I was like, oh hell, what just happened? Was that real? <laughs> Did I just experience that? And I immediately called my supervisor and said, hey, look, something bad happened last night. He said, I already heard. So in it is a fire department. It after is all. fire department in the communication center. The person that ran my tags for the officer picked up on my name and told the communications lieutenant, we got a problem. So immediately I would say I had everybody on my career was very kind to me. I thought I was going to lose my job. I was 23 years old. I was like, man, all this stuff I just worked for all the hell I've been through. And I finally got something good in my life and I'm screwing it up. So it took months. They kept me in the field. They didn't take me out of the field. They took away my ability to drive the fire engine while at work until my court case was done. I stopped drinking. I wasn't an everyday drinker or anything like that. I would just drink on Friday nights or whatnot, but I totally stopped. I attorney was able to make it for me to get the charge of a DUI reduced to, cause I had no prior history to a reckless driving. And I was assigned to court appointed alcohol counseling. So it wasn't like the ASAP program that they have or anything like that. I had to see somebody within the community services board and I had to go there once a week and talk to him and then I had a suspended license for six months. My license getting reinstated was based on the contingency that I reported to alcohol counseling and excelled in that and everything else. I was able to drive to and from work while at work. So they actually reinstated my ability to drive the fire engine. So everything was going well. I was going to counseling. A was getting through that time period. I felt a lot of embarrassment, a lot of shame 
because I let the guys down at the union hall. At this time, at the time, I felt like I let the guys down because I wasn't able to handle my alcohol and I got the union in trouble by drinking that much. I, that's what my mindset was. So already having to overcome a lot in the transition become from becoming a volunteer fire to firefighter to a career firefighter, everybody's looking at me as, as a joke at that time. So I had to get a lot of people's trust back. So when it came time to get my license back and everything else, the drug or alcohol counselor wrote a letter to the court saying he's completed all this, but he said he'd still like to see me afterwards to maintain my sobriety. The counselor would. Yeah. But I would have to say it, I was not committed to treatment. I still didn't know that I was developing a huge problem. I already had a problem. So once that letter made it to the judge, I got my license back. I was like, peace out. I don't need to talk to you anymore. I'm good. I'm healed. That's six months. I am healed. So life continued on. Within your, was there anything done within the department? I got a letter of reprimand from the chief. Okay. I guess my question is more about uh, help, not just a reprimand. No. So did they ever recognize it that, okay, maybe there's something going on here? Not that they're counselors themselves, but there's obviously something going on. I think with my captain did, the, the guy that I worked for, I he did, and he pointed me to the right people. And everybody kept an eye. My close-knit core group kept an eye on me. So it was more of if we went out to dinner, oh, you can't drink. That's one thing you can't tell some somebody that they can't do something that's mental health issues especially a firefighter yeah and to me so people saw stuff but they didn't know how to approach it as time went on out of sight i got transferred i got promoted i was out of sight out of mind people were forgetting about what happened unless if you weren't working for the county at the time you had no idea life was actually pretty good i ended up after two years of sobriety going to a wedding and having a drink and you know, one drink turned into once a Friday night, I have a couple of brother, beers with my brother after we got off work because we were all on day work back then. But then it started to escalate to if I went out to parties, I would have probably too much. But it was never an everyday thing. I thought I controlled it, that I won the battle. I got through all my demons and so on and so forth. 2006, I was transferred to station 12. I was so excited. I looked at these guys as the best of the best. Like, Explain station 12 th then, because we all, us in the county know what it's yeah. like now, but it was a different station back then. It was, we were on day work. We had engine truck and a medic crew there during the day, six to six. It was an interesting time being transferred there because station 12 was on a renovation. So we essentially every day reported the fire station, picked up all the units and ran out of a strip mall. So if you, we were in this little like store area, which they called the Jeff Davis facility, where they did like weekend EMS training and stuff like that. It was like a classroom. So you get all these different dynamics stuck in a room together all day long. Oh yeah. <laughs> it was pretty wild. but. 
it was so cool just because I those personalities and everything, I finally felt like I was at home. I felt like the incident with back in 2003 was put behind me. I gained the trust of one of the top-notch captains the department had at the time. I was, I felt wanted, needed, and I felt a part of a family. About two months after I was assigned to Station 12, Kyle Wilson was assigned to me as my rookie. And I was his mentor. I had to get him through his probationary process. And very quickly, we realized that we knew some a lot of the same people. And we became close friends. His rookie year was a lot of fun for being a brand new guy. He wasn't afraid to call BS on some of the hazing that was going on. Firehouse tricks that get put on and stuff like that. Sometimes when it got too much, you're like, Jason, you better go tell Jimmy, leave me alone. Or I'm going to whoop his ass. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, it was cool. He had his own personality. He had such leadership potential from right off the get-go. He would hang out all the time outside of work. We would go to a local bar on Friday nights, sometimes Wednesday nights. We never got stupid drunk, but we'd just sit and talk. With him being so well-known in Dale City, most of the time I sat by myself because he was out going from table to table because he knew everybody at the bar. But it was very cool because somebody that our discussions were so deep. And for somebody that I was supposed to mentor, he was mentoring me. I remember one of the nights we probably had a little too much and he stayed at my place. And he said to me, he was like, Jason, why do you give a shit what people think about you? You're a solid guy. He was like, quit that. So I'll never forget that. The bond that him and I were developing was that we were developing at the time is something that I never experienced before. And I might never again with anybody else. He liked me for me. I didn't have to prove anything. So through his rookie year, we went on a bunch of fires together. Unfortunately, I wasn't there for his very first fire, but there's a picture of him. <laughs> I guess he got super excited that he bending over because he was pretty exhausted. But you see his suspenders hanging out of his <laughs> coat. He forgot to pull them up. So we always teased him about that. But life was good. We had a good bond at 12. After Kyle came in, we had a brand new rookie, Tom Arnado, come in. And those guys were like two peas in a pot. I was like, man, these guys are quickly becoming my best friends. Real family. On April 16th, 2007, I was laying in bed at home. And I received what I call now the best worst phone call of my life. Somebody called me up that I used to work with. And she actually works, was working on the west end of the county at the time. And she said, Jason, I something bad has happened. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she said to me, it was like, you're, there's a fire on your first due. It sounds like your rookie is trapped in the stairwell. What? I'm thinking to myself, how is this possible? And it's, we don't get trapped. I was like, for how long? She said 10 minutes. And I immediately I said, shit, we don't get trapped for 10 minutes and something isn't good. We don't get trapped for 10 minutes and the outcome usually <laughs> it ends up being good. 
So I asked her, I was like, where's the fire at? She told me, and it's literally two blocks from where I live. So it took me a while to get my wits about me. And when she told me my rookie was trapped in a fire, I was thinking it was Tom. And I was mentally preparing for Tom not to be alive anymore. He just has a wife and a brand new daughter. I was like, how are we going to handle this? How are you? I immediately went into the mode of the senior tech two at the fire station. I got to take care of my guys. I got to, I got to, so many things were going through my head. So I then get into my car. I drive the two blocks to the fire and the whole time I could smell the fire and Lord knows why I didn't hear the fire engines flying by my house. I was dead asleep to the world. Typically the slightest thing wake me up, but I wasn't woken up that morning. But on the way there, I could see the smoke. I could see the fire through the tree line and I pulled onto the street. A police officer had just shown up so, to block off the road. So I just stopped there, sat in my car and watched the fire. Called my father up, told him, Hey, here's the deal. There's a bad fire going on. And my rookie's trapped. He was like, is he dead? I was like, I think so. I talked to my, I can't remember much more of the conversation, but I feel like I should go down there and see what's going on. But I also knew the accountability issues. I didn't have any gear. I knew it was probably mass chaos going on. So this is probably going on 45 minutes in the fire. And my dad said to me, he's like, when I told him, I was like, I don't think I should go down there because I don't think I'll be able to control my emotions. I don't think it's just, it's an accountability issue. My dad said to me, he said, Jason, fuck your emotions. You got to find out. So I saw a guy that was actually the volunteer maintenance coordinator that lived on the same street, walking up the street. And I decided to get out of my car, go and speak with him. And I said, Bob, what's going on? He says, not good. And I said, who is it? But I don't know why I asked who it was because in my head, it was already taught. I was already set. And when he said, Kyle, I just buckled. Yeah. The emotions were gone. He was able to gather me up enough to where he was, he, I asked, where are the guys at? He said in a garage next to the house. I said, take me to him. All right. He walked me down there and he basically had, I had to have my arm around him because my legs were like cello. I could barely walk. And the first thing that I saw when he got me down to the guys. He walked me right past the house that had burned up. And I thought Kyle was probably out of the house inside the medic unit or whatever. I didn't know where Kyle was at, but the first person I saw was Tom and Tom was brand new four months in, in the field and never had a fire in his life. And I saw him, his eyes had changed that Thursday or Friday. I saw him at work. He had the look of the. We used to call him Hollywood, <laughs> a brand new green firefighter, excited to be on the job. When I looked in his eyes and I can understand what people say when you can look into somebody's eyes and can tell they've been in the shit. Tom went from being 
his eyes went from being a brand new rookie to just experience 30 years of the, on the job. And I could see his exhaustion. I was like, oh man, this kid's going to quit. <laughs> that was one of the first things I said, he's done. And then I saw my brother, my brother was operating on the fire and I tried to start to make sense of what was happening. And the guys told me that Kyle was still inside and in rundown of what had happened. Some time went on and they were talking about removing him from the house. And when anytime there's a fatality, there's a lot of tradition that has to be it, it, that people try to do to honor the person as you're taking them from the scene to wherever the final destination would be. And they were getting, gathering all the guys from 12 to, to pull them out and put out of the house and put them in the back of the medic unit. And I remember saying, I was like, I don't have any gear. I need to be a part of this. I was like, let me go back to the station, and get my gear. And then buddy Walt, he was like, Jason, wear my gear. Walt was a little bit bigger than me at the time, especially his boots. <laughs> so it was clumsy getting into those things, but it was a great gift. I was able to go upstairs, take Kyle out in the honorable traditional way that it was meant to be done. The reason I say it's the best worst phone call in my life is because Kyle being my rookie, being my friend, I felt that I was responsible for him. I was responsible in bringing him home. I was able to take part in that and, and be able to, I, I don't know how I would have reacted if I wouldn't have been able to do that. It was very, at the moment, it was very healing for me. I didn't realize it at the time, but years back looking, I was very grateful. I was able to do that. After the fire, it was all said and done. After we were able to lay called the rest, that's when a lot of the guys, the way that we dealt with that was we were going out drinking every night. Not so much to the point of pass out drunk or anything. We were just going out and being together. Yeah, the camaraderie that's necessary after a tragedy. Yeah. It, and it got a little excessive at times, but I didn't feel like I really had a problem still. Then I would say 2000, a year after Kyle was laid to rest, that's when I was transferred away from 12. They sent me to a tanker by myself. With... And, and why the transfers though? I don't, I think that they thought that it was best for me, best for everybody involved that was close to the situation to get them away from, from the situation. That time had passed. It was time for, we needed to take another step. I really think that deep down inside, they thought they were doing the right thing. The administration thought they were doing the right thing, but none of us, I think were prepared through any type of real counseling or anything like that. And I actually probably want to step back a little bit after a college passed, we didn't really have the appropriate therapy. None of us were afforded that opportunity to sit down or guided 
in the right direction for the appropriate therapy. After we laid Kyle the rest and we were, our therapy was going out and drinking. The county said that, that we should go out and get a hold of the people from the EAP. <laughs> okay. I kind of chuckle at that right. now. It was a different time back then. Was, they're like, we support you. I'll call the EAP if you need some help. So I called the EAP and I got hooked up with a therapist that definitely was not in any position to deal with somebody like us with trauma therapy. It was more, you come here for your six sessions, but after that, you're paying out of your own pocket, using your own leave, everything else like that. The county was able to extend my EAP sessions for six more that I didn't have to pay for. But after that, the whole time period, I was using my own leave to go to this stuff. Which is, it's, it to me, it's unfathomable. Like, it's not like a bereavement leave. It wasn't like an admin leave. It's, you're, you got to use your own annual leave. You shouldn't even be expected to take any of the leaves. It should be, this is what we're going to do for you. Yeah, and immediately after he passed, the world was ours. Oh, we'll take care of you. We're going to do all this for you. Anytime you need off, just take it. We'll, we'll put it as administratively, but that ran out. Of course. Yeah. That, that was only for a period of time, but the therapist that I saw, I didn't connect with, I processed very little next to nothing. It wasn't the appropriate situation. Then the county ended up hiring their own behavioral health therapist and I was her first patient. So I got some stuff done, but during that time period, uh, I, like 2008, I got transferred out of the station away from my support network. I still remember when I sat down and started drinking my first like case of beer in a city. I wasn't a big beer fan because I couldn't fathom being away from these guys. Ultimately, we had such a bond over the, the year after he passed when we got split up, all the other guys that I was helping out. I wasn't there anymore to help them out. So they all went on, got married, processed things the way they needed a process. And here I was by myself and I hadn't done one stitch of anything to take care of myself. So just not having a mission to help anybody. I didn't know I needed to help myself. I was still going to those bars that I was going out with the guys or going to the guys with a couple of times a week. And I'm sitting there by myself. I found myself at one bar that Kyle and I used to frequent cheeseburger of paradise quite often. Kyle even had his own chair there at the bar that he would always sit in because they had its own little television in front of him. He loved that seat. So I sat in that chair every single time. I, I felt close to him. I never, just like the Christmas fire, I never processed it. Then as the years went on, I ended up getting transferred to the training academy. And I loved every second of that. I, it, it, I felt like I had a mission again, I had people to teach. I felt like I was pretty decent at it. Maybe not. I don't know, <laughs> but I had a lot of fun. The main thing is I was happy. I, what year did you go up there? 2010. Okay. Yeah. And I did five recruit schools. And for people listening and don't understand that the five recruit schools, a recruit school equates to about six months. Yeah. 
So it was awesome. It, it, I my drinking wasn't very intense then because you know you get up in the morning you got to run with these kids <laughs> make sure you're able to keep up. So after my time in the fire academy is done, I went back into the field. I got assigned back in Woodbridge, but I never. I still hadn't dealt with anything. So not only bring everything together from the time I was five years old to now I'm in my thirties, I had all this stuff happen to me. I had, I was assaulted when I was a child. They had the Christmas fire, my family splitting up, multiple friends committing suicide through the fire service and out. It, it, I had so much tragedy happening to me that I just felt numb and this is normal. This is normal life. Everything's cool. So the culmination of all that, and it came to a point where my drinking got really uncontrollable. To me, there's my alcoholism. I had what was I didn't drink every day my version of my alcoholism I didn't drink every day I didn't crave it I didn't have the shakes I didn't wake up to drink I didn't do any of that when things got overwhelming I would binge drink and after the time period of not receiving their appropriate therapy throughout my whole life and not saying, Hey, look, I have a problem. I would go through life saying look, everything's great. Everybody, I was able to, even with the mask, my drinking and from my family and from some of my closest friends, I binge drinking when I set up like for a binge was all, all subconscious. It, would be looking forward to Friday and saying, do I have anything to do on the weekend on Saturday or Sunday? If I don't, I can go out Friday night. I can listen to music and I, have a, I can have a couple of drinks. And then I would go home and I would have all the alcohol laid out so I could continue the party. Whether it be like four cans of Four loco, a bottle of Jameson, so on and so forth. I go home, play video games or whatever, and I'd sit there and drink until I'd go to sleep. Is it go to sleep or pass out? It'd probably pass out. Then I would wake up from being passed out and I would drink again until I'd pass back out. So you're an organized drunk. Yeah, very organized. <laughs> but looking back at it now, it's just, man, I was super sick. The behaviors that I was exhibiting was not normal behaviors, healthy behavior. I won't say, I try not to use the word normal because what's really normal? None of us are normal. That's what's normal. <laughs> yeah, it's not healthy behaviors. I was binging more often than I wasn't. And sometimes I'd go without, but I was still able to maintain at work. If during one of my binges, I binged for a little bit too long and I felt like I couldn't do my job, I would call in sick to work the next day. So I could recover. Were you on shift work at this point? Uh, still day work. I was on day work. Okay. So a lot of the time, like I was saying before, that if I never drank in my life, 
I probably have a butt ton of sick leave because 90% of the time I called in sick, it was due to me using alcohol throughout the, my career. I think that's a popular theme. Yeah. That I had many nights like that time periods. I'd lose two or three days at a time. There was one time I called my brother on Saturday night about eight o'clock. I said, Hey, Sean, I'm not going to, I overslept. I'm not going to be able to make it for church Saturday night at eight o'clock. So I'm thinking it's Sunday morning at eight o'clock. My brother's okay. You're hammered. And he could, that's when people, he could start seeing that I was having a problem, but didn't know how to approach me. Very shortly after that time, I got promoted to Lieutenant. Everybody thought I was doing great. I was masking stuff very well. I went out, I was excited about being Lieutenant. So that actually had me back off from the drinking for a while. I, after about a year of being a Lieutenant, I started to slip back into the same habits. I got this amount of time off. I don't have anything to do on board. So let's, binge and play video games, lose a couple days. Then there was a time period, I think it was the summer of 2017, where we were running multiple calls with fatalities of children. And I still wasn't processing it. I was looking after the guys and I never took a, a, a step back and said, Jason, you're messed up, dude. You're having a hard time with all this. But I was so quick calling my guys at home. You guys are good. You guys good. Never checked on myself. And I went on a vacation with my mom and my sister to Ocean City, Maryland. Here we go. Back to the scene of the crime. Yeah, you guys did. <laughs> We'll even get to that now. Ocean City is like one of my biggest places of solace now to go to. It's it's weird. But I went to Ocean City. It was very hard. I look back at it now. Something I was excited to go see for the first time in 18 years or however long it was. I was looking forward to the situation. To being there. To being with the family. To seeing the boardwalks. To smelling everything. But throughout all of my trauma that I experienced... So all the stuff that I saw never managed. It came a time period in my life where I wasn't able to understand good or bad emotions. So something that should be fun and a good time, like I would get extreme anxiety about. So when I was in Ocean City, I started feeling anxious. I was like, I shouldn't be having this good time. Why am I, why do I feel good? I shouldn't feel good. So I went to a bar called Shenanigans. And that's where the shenanigans began <laughs> that night. My mom and my sister went back to the hotel and I drank a lot. I woke up in a bush the next morning. The sunlight was coming through the bush. I could see that. I was so drunk that I pissed myself. I mean, we all, in the fire department, we run those calls. People laid out, pissed themselves. I was like, oh man, yeah, this isn't so good. I'm lucky I didn't get locked up, so... I stumbled my way back to the hotel. My mom was like, where the hell have you been? And I said, oh, I was just out watching the sun come up. Meanwhile, reeking of alcohol and piss. So I took a shower, passed out, totally denied it that there was a problem or anything like that. And thought to myself, man, I got to quit drinking. And the healthy side in me was begging for me to stop. After a week or two went by, I was like, well, I made it through that. I didn't get in trouble. I'm a, it's okay if I drank. So the sick side of my... A sick side of me, I decided to set up for another bench. So this is now fast forward to September. 
I went out to dinner and to the local pub that I was going to all the time. And I elected the, not elected, but I said to myself, I'm going to go here, have these couple of drinks. I'm going to go home and bench. Not in that way, but my brain was saying, this is what you're going to do. Me just thought I was having a normal Friday night. So I remember eating dinner and having a glass of Jameson and I think a beer. And the next thing that I know is I'm waking up and I think I'm at home in bed and I reach up to scratch my face and I'm like, why can't I move my arm? Did I get hurt or something like that? And I noticed, I looked down and saw a handcuff on my wrist. And I was in a hospital room and I said, holy shit. And the officer that's sitting in the room is saying, holy shit is correct. And I'm like, what the hell happened? He said, you were found on the side of the road, passed out in your car, your vehicle was running, and your car was in gear. And I was like, oh my God. And I couldn't fathom what the hell just happened. He told me where they found me. And I was about a quarter mile away from my house. And I said, did I hurt anybody? I remember saying that. He was like, no. I was in the hospital for quite a few hours. I guess during the times I had a couple really bad emotional breaks. Kyle's mom was employed with the hospital at that time as the ER secretary. So apparently I flipped out a few times about not letting her see me and, and all that. They were in contact with my brother. The police officer was the police officer wouldn't let my brother come see me. Basically, they were trying to get my blood alcohol level to come down. And then they were going to make a decision on what they were going to do for me at that point. And me talking about my blood alcohol, obviously I was in no condition to do a sobriety test. So they took my blood. And my blood alcohol level is 0.38, which is near death. And so I was stuck in the hospital basically overnight into the early morning hours. And I guess I sobered enough in the hospital's eyes to be released to the police officer and to be taken to jail. I remember during that transport to jail, the officer was so extremely kind to me the whole time period. I was very sick and I think he saw it that I didn't, I wasn't going out trying to do any, I didn't have any criminal intent or anything like that. But he was like, your brother's going to come bail you out. And I said, absolutely not. I don't want to be bailed out. I want to stay here. I was, the, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they call it a spiritual awakening. Not only I was relieved I didn't hurt anybody, but I was relieved that the cat was out of the bag. I didn't give two shits about the fire department. I was like, I'm going to lose my job. I don't care. Don't care. I want to get help. They stuck me in a cell by myself. And I had no correlation of how the time frame went or anything like that. I was pretty inebriated when I was released still. I remember walking out and seeing my father and my brother. And... The first thing I said to them, I was very sorry. And they're like, it's okay. We're going to get you help. I was like, yes. 
Finally, it's okay. I need help. Yes, I'm excited about this. I'm hammered, but I'm excited. I'm still very intoxicated. My dad took my brother and I, or we went down to the tow yard where they impounded my vehicle. They got my car out of the impound, and my dad immediately took me to Arlington Hospital. It was good to get me out of the area of the county, because both hospitals, I know, the, the hospitals in the county, I know doctors, nurses, everything else. I wanted far away from anything to do with the fire department. I was sick and tired of firemen. Want nothing to do with it. It got me into Arlington Hospital. They, they took my blood alcohol level, still 0.14. This is a good almost 24 hours after I stopped drinking. Maybe not that long, but it was the afternoon of the next day. And they're able to find me a bed at Fairfax Hospital for a program called CATS. It's the Center for Alcohol and Addiction Treatment Services. So I went into the detox there. Going into that program... I look back at it that I'm very grateful that I went there because some people are trying to get me into the place in Maryland, the IFS center. But due to me being, there was no time to go to a courthouse because I wasn't allowed to leave the state as, as part of my release on bond. I wasn't allowed to leave the state. So we had to act fast. We didn't have time to get a judge say it's okay for him to leave the state. They, and I, honestly, I didn't want to be around firefighters. I didn't want to go there. I was sick and tired of putting up a front and taking care of everybody else. I don't think even at that time, when I, the first stages of my recovery, I was like, this wouldn't be help, good for me because I'd try to help everybody else out. So walking into this detox center was very humbling because I was with the regular people, business people that work at Walmart. I was with, I didn't have to be Superman anymore. I could take off my cape and I could be Jason for the first time. And I can't even recall when I could be Jason again, probably before I joined the fire service. And I was just a regular kid playing soccer. So I loved it. <laughs> I love detox. I was very excited. Uh, all the legal stuff that was going on, I knew it was there. I was like, I'm going to lose my job. I don't care. I'm going to get better. There's other stuff out there. I was just at that breaking point. After a few days in the detox center, they put me into day treatment. I was in day treatment for a week. Met some of those awesome people. I always tell people that I met some I saw some very heroic actions as a firefighter. I met some very heroic people, but the most heroic people, the people, the most courage that I have ever met is in a treatment center that raises their hand and says, I need help. So being in day treatment, I started being able to make the connections. So yes, I am very sick, but I'm not alone. And there is, I'm going to be able to get help. After that, they were able to put me into an IOP, intensive outpatient therapy. I went there three nights a week for three hours a night where we had group therapy, alcohol education, substance. I was there with heroin addicts, uh, 
every type of addiction you could think of, I was sitting in a room with. That's when I first started going to my first AA meetings. They, I was able to link up with some of the people there. And I was like, man, there is so much help out here. I felt so alone, but there's help everywhere. I quickly learned there's like over 1,500 AA meetings a month in the Northern Virginia area. Any, at any time I could go someplace, I also learned that there's other things. Hey, if, if aid doesn't work for certain people, yeah, there's online stuff and all kinds of different tools. So after IOP, I did that for three months. Then I went to a, the net, a step down program, which was a relapse prevention and then a sober living, another step down program. It took about a year of night therapy for me to go to. During that time period, I also got hooked up with a trauma psychologist and who I still see to this day, sometimes multiple times a week. He's awesome. Very blessed to have this guy. Throughout my lifetime, I sought out therapy for different reasons, but I never connected and I wasn't ready for it. Yeah, he's awesome. He was able to put the puzzle pieces for me together and help me through the time period of transitioning from detox to... So I'm learning certain substance abuse tools, but then I'm learning what the hell happened to get me to that substance abuse. It wasn't any one thing. It wasn't the Christmas fire. It wasn't just the my assault that happened to me when I was five. It wasn't Kyle. It wasn't all this. It was a whole bunch of dominoes that fell. A lot of people that think they know part of my story, they think I just drank myself because I was sad about Kyle. Of course I was sad about Kyle. That's just maybe one one hundredth of what the heck was going on with me. I have very significant PTSD, major anxiety, major depression. There was, there were so many different pieces to the puzzle that the trauma psychologist was helping me put together. It was helping me put together. Doctors were helping me put together. So throughout the time period from me initially going into detox and starting all these therapy, obviously I had court in the background I had to worry about. So it took a, about a year inside the court system for my case to be heard because I had a really good attorney, had a lot of people in my, in my corner understanding that this was bigger than just Jason going out and having a fun night. Jason's very sick, but Jason, there's hope. There's Jason's doing the right stuff. And the thing is, I wasn't doing the right stuff for the court. I didn't give two shits about the court. I didn't get, I was ready to face my charge. I was ready to do all that. I just wanted to get better. <laughs> I was so sick. So eventually I ended up getting hurt in the court system, had a lot of support from the judge, a lot of support from the county attorney, the police officer that arrested me and everybody saw the bigger picture. I had my charge reduced to a reckless driving and I was at, told to, or sentenced to two weeks in jail. So basically 15 days. The I can't, I think it was 150, I was sentenced to 150 days in jail, but the rest was suspended and stuff like that. So I did 15 days in jail and that was very interesting. These are, I'm meeting new people. These guys are struggling too. So I'm getting their story 
And I'm able to take that time in there in jail and turn it around into something in my favor. Jail is a scary place. It's not a good place. It's not somebody anybody wants to be, but I cherish my time there because I got to hear a lot of stories and to hear that I wasn't alone. So after I got out of jail, and this part on it, you'll probably have to edit, but um, I don't know if I necessarily need to go into, or would you like me to go how I, the fire department handled me? It's completely up to uh, you. I think it's important that okay. people hear go for it, it but because we got to understand how to treat people. That no, I sick. completely agree with you. So I did my two weeks in jail. And during that time period, I felt pretty supported by the fire department. Like I was saying, when I woke up in the hospital, I didn't care if I lost my job or not. I was very grateful I didn't lose my job right off the bat. Because in that time frame, the almost year... That my court case pended, I was able to carry insurance. The department had every right to fire me at that point. I'm not exactly sure why they didn't, but I'm very grateful because it afforded me the ability to get the care that I needed. Uh, they were letting me go to night treatment, get off work to go to night treatment, and all that stuff during that whole time period. People seemed pretty pretty kind to my face uh, as far as the guys from the rank and file in the station everybody seemed very supportive very caring i know there's a lot of people out there that said oh we knew this was going to happen to jason i saw it coming for a long time i heard people were saying that you, you have to wonder if you see it coming what the hell are you not saying something why the fuck do you not step up and say wait yeah, let's get him some help. Because obviously there there were signs there. I was isolating at the station. I wasn't being around my crew as much. I might not have looked healthy. I mean, you have a good binge over a weekend. You're not going to look hydrated. Coming in haggard. Yeah, you're going to be sluggish. If people saw this. Why didn't they say something? I heard all that, but mainly I got a lot of support. I... When I went into jail, I was working with a battalion chief on how this was going to play out. I got sentenced on a Wednesday, and I was supposed to report on a Monday. I immediately notified my supervisor saying, hey, look, this is what the court. I just got a reckless driving, and they want me to go away for two weeks. All very manageable stuff to where I could have stayed employed. But me having a prior history and being given a chance in 2003, my my situation was a little bit different, I think. In 2003, I wasn't ready to get help. I didn't think I had a problem. 2017, 2018, doing everything to get help, but not for the fire department, not for the job, but for me. And to show other people that, you know, that you can get better. When I was sentenced on the Wednesday and had a report on the Monday, I was told that the leave, I asked for a leave without pay. Because at that point in time, I exhausted almost all my sick leave. And I was using FMLA to go to treatment and everything else like that. And I was told that... You'll be good to go. We'll talk to you when you get out, when you get back. So 
I'm like, cool, maybe I'm going to be able to keep my job. At that point in time, I was starting to feel better. Almost a year of sobriety at that point. I was like, maybe I'll give it a shot. So I go in the jail, do my time, come out. The first thing I see is an email. The night I got out of jail from the fire department stating that uh, your leave has not been approved. And that if you don't report to work tomorrow or the next day, I can't remember the exact wording of it, you're, it's going to be deemed as a resignation of that you're going to be resigned and not good standing with the department. And I'm like, what? Here I am the Sunday night before I go into jail and my battalion chief is telling me it's taken care of. You're good to go. All right. And now I get this letter in the mail or in the email. I'm like, what the hell's going on? So I call up one of the chiefs. I'm like, what's the deal? And they said, you read the email. And I'm like, yeah, but they're like, make sure you read it again. Read it again. <laughs> so <sighs> I immediately called my dad, asked for some advice. And he was figuring that they were going to do something to make me go away. At that point in time, I couldn't understand why are they making me, they held me there that long. Why are they making me go away now? Is it because I'm getting better? Is it because other people are seeing their problems and they're getting help? Or are they afraid I'm going to be at Apple? I didn't know what the deal was. So I got all the very much politically correct answers. I, they said I could meet with one of the chiefs and I liked it not to because the attorney that I acquired said, yeah, don't meet with him right now. Just, it wasn't the right thing. I tried to get a, an attorney through the union. The union wasn't supporting, helping me out with the situation on a multitude of things. They didn't think it was a winnable case. It was a little frustrating because I wasn't able to speak to the union attorney. I had to speak through a third party. So I went out and got my own employment attorney. And the thing was, I wasn't wanting to fight for my job per se. I was okay not have. I was okay being let go. In a way, I was almost relieved. But then I was like, man, this is dirty the way they did. This is disgusting. It's chicken shit. Yeah. Why couldn't you bring me in? You guys know me over 20 years. Why don't you bring me in the office and say, hey, Jason, we need to part ways. Totally cool with that. So I sought out an employment attorney and he said, it's going to be a, a long battle. We probably could win it. It's going to cost a lot of money. And I, at this point in time, the whole... Uh, court battle that I went through in the first place, I've already, my father spent a lot of money helping me out. I said, I'm done, right? I'm done. There's more to life. Through my whole year of therapy and that whole first year, I was learning from people that weren't in the fire department. I was talking to people that weren't in the fire department. My psychologist said to me something so profound that I still carry it to me with me this to this day. He said that one of his days as a psychologist, he was very stressed out. He was tired of the job. And he went into a CVS and he saw somebody organizing the Valentine's candy aisle. And they he said to himself, if the only thing I had to worry about 
today was how to sort the candy. Man, that's an awesome job. It's a lot of pressure doing what we do. I was tired of being Superman. I didn't, I learned I didn't need to, I didn't need to be anymore. So I told my dad I was done with the fire department. I was done fighting it. I don't agree with how it went down. I understand why they let me go, but it could have been done a completely different way. So essentially I decided to take a few months off. I went out, saw the Grand Canyon. I started seeing things that I'd never seen in my life. I saw what the world was outside of the fire department. And I was like, this is pretty awesome. I don't have the stress of the calls, uh, the stress of making myself look like I am the best firefighter in the world, the pressure of the clicks, the pressure of the hazing, the harassment, everything else that goes on. Once people can be very cruel, I was like, I can walk away. So a few months off work and doing things for myself and going, still going to therapy and doing stuff like that. I saw that, uh, Mary Washington Hospital was hiring patient transporters. I was like, I need to get out and get some exercise because <laughs> I'm not doing very hot. So I went over to Mary Washington and just pushed patients around from appointment to appointment and just got out talking to people again, trying to get back in the life. And after a few months of doing that, my sister-in-law that works down for Caroline County Fire Department said that we're hiring. What do you think about trying to make another run at it? And I was like, you know what? I, I just have a little bit left of my BRS. BRS being the retirement system in Virginia. Yeah. I just have a little bit to get my full 20. <sighs> Let's give it a shot. I wanted this to be a part of my story that you can, not only for me, for other people to see that with their appropriate uh, therapy, the appropriate treatment, you can do the job after being so sick. So it was a thing that I said, I'll give it a shot. They were gracious enough to hire me and I worked there for two years, loved everybody, every second of it. They were so kind and so accepting of my past, more accepting than some of my closest people that I thought were friends. And it just gave, it gave me a way to close that chapter. And I can remember the, this time last year is when I start getting phone calls about different opportunities to, to work at treatment centers and stuff like that. And I got a phone call to interview for a behavioral health hospital in Northern Virginia. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to actually go interview for this because I don't need to be a firefighter. I don't have to. This is not me. The life is bigger than being a firefighter. That's all I've done since I was 16 years old, I'm going to go live. And I was going to a dispatch to a house fire down there and I was riding officer on the fire engine. And that day I was like, I'm done. If these guys offered me a job, I'm done. So I ended up interviewing with them and they offered me a job on the adolescent unit at the hospital for inpatient that have a whole mental multitude of, um, illnesses from some depression, maybe some drug uses and stuff like that. And basically I was going to go in there and be like a mentor and get them through their day and do groups therapy with them and all that kind of stuff. I was like, man, this is awesome. 
one of my favorite jobs in the fire department was being a tech too and being that having that bond with the newer guys and stuff and i can relate to these kids i had a jacked up beginning had issues with my parents so i was like this is a no-brainer it's time to go this time last year i officially retired from the fire department and i've been working at the behavioral hospital ever since and I'm constantly still going to group therapy for myself. I am still seeing my psychologist. We're going through different types of therapy. I have a lot to work through still, but for the first time in my life, I feel free. Did I need to go back to being a firefighter? No, no. When, if I had to go back and recognize how sick I was getting, I probably would have left the fire service a long time ago, probably maybe early 2010, I probably would have left because I was getting really sick and I didn't need to suffer like that. My family didn't need to suffer. And there's so much more to life than getting on that rig. There's so much more to life. Now I walk outside and I notice the, the wind blowing through the trees. And I see that the world's so much bigger than me. So much bigger than riding on a fire truck. Now, can I do this alone? No, I can't. Can I get through today alone? No. I have something what I talk about as my pit crew. Throughout my whole life, I had been doing things by myself and it didn't work. I never asked for help. I always helped everybody else. Now, after going through what I have gone through, I equated to this. Like I was running in a NASCAR race because I love NASCAR. I was running the race in my car by myself. Nobody helping me out for the longest time. I was always finishing last. My car was always breaking down. I'd come into the pits and I'd see my friend's car come in. I would go help my friend out before I helped my car out. And I was never even finishing the race. <laughs> but the day I ended up in the hospital and I raised my hand and said I needed help. That's when my pit crew started. I got my family that will help me work on my car. I got friends. I got people from church. I have doctors, therapists, coworkers. I have a person in my life I can call for any type of situation instead of hiding at home and drinking it away and trying to get my brain to shut up. If I feel like shit, it's okay. I can call somebody and tell them I feel like shit. <laughs> it's human. You don't have to feel like shit by yourself. I am so grateful for to have that ability now to... to be able to wake up every day a clear-minded feel not having the shits for a week not having headaches more money in my bank account no regret in the morning I, oh what the hell did i text or what did i do stupid i have hope i feel alive and when you're sick for so long it's wild it's like i've been reborn i think i posted something the other night on my Facebook talking about when I was drinking that I, I lost decade, at least a decade. I have a hard time remembering anything. I was frozen in time after Kyle had passed and everything got 
shuffled around and I wasn't getting the appropriate therapy, I essentially got frozen in time. After my first year of sobriety, I was looking at my place and I said, man, I don't like the way I'm living right now. How did I live like this? I wanted to rearrange stuff. You get the energy to do, start doing mm -hmm. cool things again. <laughs> and I noticed on my table, I had a piece of mail from 2008 on my table. Yeah, so you were really frozen. Yeah, really frozen. In a mental and a physical space. <laughs> yes. No, it's so cool. I'm so much more engaged with my life, my niece and nephew. I'm engaged for my with my family, but I'm engaged with me. If I'm not scared to say I can't do this alone. I want other people to understand. You don't have to be alone through this. You don't have to suffer. It, there, you raise your hand, your pit crew will start. There's people that out there that give a shit. I've had many phone calls from people throughout this time period of, how are you doing this? I'm not doing it alone. Here's a list. This is the path that I took. It might not work for you, but you might be able to, you might be able to develop your own pathway to healing through hearing my story. Going through Cause not every therapy works for every person. Everybody's different. Yep. But some of the other advice I have, if you're a firefighter, police officer, soldier, whatever, and you're in a moment and you think this is the only thing to life that is out there is getting on that rig, getting in your squad car, doing whatever. That's the only thing in life that there is. It's not true. You can do anything you want. It is such a liberating feeling to know that if you don't want to do something anymore, you can walk away. It may be hard at the time with a pit crew of people that will support you and help you work through it. You succeed in anything. You there's no shame in saying I'm done. So I there's strength in saying you're done. Yeah. I would say that. I would, I would it's quite the opposite of shame. Yeah. There's strength in saying you're done because that's recognizing what you need for yourself. Yeah. And not enough of us do that. So those, that's definitely wise words. Yeah. So what are you doing today? I know you, you, you enjoy the job. You're, you enjoy working with the kids. Oh, yeah. Love uh, it. What's your therapy look like today? How many times? Uh, I see my psychologist every Friday at 3 o'clock. And a lot of the times we'll just walk through the town of Occoquan and we'll process stuff with COVID having in-person visits and stuff like that kind of sucks. Finding a great therapist is, can be very difficult for people. I think throughout my whole mental health journey, I went through seven different people and until I finally found one that clicked. And that's one piece of advice I got to give people. You try therapy and it's not working. Try somebody else. That's perseverance in itself right there. Yeah, you got to keep on trying. I work with my doctor every four months. I am able to process how I'm feeling, the medications that she's prescribed me for depression, anxiety, and all that, and see if they're working. A lot of people say to me, you go every four months? I'm like, yeah, I have to. The, because I want to say, she knows me well, and she's been there since day one. Mm -hmm. Knows me well enough that I walk in the room and say, something's not right with Jason. Maybe we need to go up on this. Maybe we need to change the med here. So medicines, therapists, you have to be patient because not they. it takes a while to get that to come together. So some people 
I would uh, one of the suggestions I would say is some people say I'm taking this medicine and it's not doing anything. You're not supposed to take a pill and you're supposed to feel magically better. You t and this is the way I because I said the same thing at one time. The appropriate medicine and the appropriate therapy for the situation. It's like the right tool for the right job. Them working together, you will feel better. One without the other is a little difficult because you're not processing the stuff that you're going through. So I'm very engaged with therapy, very engaged with my doctors, very engaged in going to meetings. My, my biggest thing is the trauma therapy. That helps me figure out why certain things, why I respond to certain way to things, why things have happened throughout my life, why I've taken a path of not trusting people and help me regain myself. I love your talk, my job. It's one of the most challenging jobs you could ever do. And without the appropriate therapy, the appropriate pit crew, it would be definitely very overwhelming. And my coworkers are the best. They're such a huge part of my pit crew. So going in there, cause it's very challenging mm. be being a person in the past to take on everybody's problems. But now I have the ability not to take on everybody's problems. I have the ability to guide them and say, here's the steps I took and be able to walk away and leave it at work or in any situation. I would say my life is very structured. I have to keep it structured. People with substance abuse, you have to stay structured, or at least I do, to maintain my sobriety. I, But structure doesn't always work with everybody. But for me, it's a huge part. I have to be able to sleep, go to bed in my own bed every night. I couldn't do overnights anymore. I am very grateful I don't have to do shift work in the mm -hmm. fire department. Because, especially, I think I was almost blessed to get out what I did because the unstructured life, the, the, the work schedule of the firefighter would have been completely dangerous for me without therapy. Yeah, uh, that's what we could do an episode itself on the structure of the schedule for a firefighter because it is very destructive at points. Yeah. Yeah, so being able to have set days that I know I'm going to work, being able to go to bed in my own bed every night. Sleep is amazing. Going to sleep without being medicated with alcohol, it's life-changing because you never really sleep well when you're hammered. No. I just, it, the only thing, I definitely didn't use alcohol to sleep. I get use alcohol to shut my brain out so I could pass out and my brain would shut up. But now having the appropriate therapy, the appropriate meds, if my brain starts talking to me and won't shut up, I know how to shut it up yeah. with meditation and all other kind of coping skills. But life is good. I feel engaged with life. I feel happy. I'm excited to get up in the morning. Do I still have shit days? Absolutely. I didn't drink every day. I was very blessed. I never craved alcohol. I craved my brain to shut up. But do I still have those days where, damn, would that pizza and a beer be good? Absolutely. I'm human. Yeah. But I also know that if I ever were to have another drink, my brain chemistry has been so changed that I could never be a one beer drinker or one shot person. If I have one drink, I would have to drink the bottle. Even today. Yeah. And you told me the other day that if you drank now, you would die. Yeah, absolutely. I, that would be my next step. I would be dead. Obviously I almost did die. I could have killed other people. I'm very blessed, very grateful, 
to be here to be able to, sh to share that people ever ask people ask me all the time you think you'll drink again and with somebody that has that's in recovery the only thing we have is today right it's they say it's one day at a time to me it's one second at a time and i tell people i can't tell you i'll never drink again but i can tell you i will not drink today I like that as a stopping point, if you don't mind. Absolutely. I think that's perfect right there. Yeah. You've listened to a couple of episodes, so I have two more questions for you. Yeah. Everyday carry. I call the show the things we all carry because basically that we go into a call every day. We go into a call with something in our hands, but we come out with something that affects us after each call. So what's something you carry physically on your body that you have every day? And I see you've got it in your hand right now. So <laughs> go ahead and tell us what it is, because I know you're proud of this. Oh, absolutely. When I went into Tox, the first step of the CATS program, every time you complete the step-down program, you're given what's called a camel coin. I'm proud of my, my first 24 hours for sobriety chip. Very much proud. But this is the very first coin that I ever got beforehand. So when I went through my first AE meeting and at cats, they gave me this, but it's called a camel coin. And on the back of it, it says, my eyesight's getting worse <laughs> these days. It says the camel each day goes twice to its knees. He picks up his load with the greatest of ease. He walks through the day with his head held high and stays for that day completely dry. So <laughs> interesting. Yeah. If you don't mind, I'll take a picture of that later. And oh, I can, absolutely. I can attach it to the show notes. Absolutely. All right. What's a book, a movie, an artist, anything? What's something you'd like to suggest so people can learn or be entertained even? One of the greatest books, and it's a movie too, that I've read throughout my process, it's called The Shack. I haven't heard of it. And I totally forget the author right off the top of my head. But the book basically explains why good things happen to, or bad things happen to good people. <laughs> so essentially, not to give it away, a guy experiences the tragedy of the loss of his child. And it explains why, how the, why the, he's going through the grief and the process that he is and how, why it happened and how he can move on from it. Okay. I don't want to give too much away, but it's a great book. Read the book first. The movie's pretty good, but the book's always better. I always suggest the yeah. book first. Sometimes just the book, to yeah. be honest with you. I'm going to show you pictures. Is this the one? It is. All right. So I'll link to that as well in the show notes, and they'll have availability to it. Dude, I can't thank you enough. <laughs> you you were up for this, and we just spent two hours talking, and it feels like we've been here for a few minutes. So yeah. I appreciate you coming over. I appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you being open as you can be, and I just appreciate you. I appreciate you too, man. Getting the message out there is huge. I'm more than willing to come back and share. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's stuff we didn't even touch on that we've already talked about. So Yeah. Yeah, but I think right now, for today, I think we've done a good job, and, and uh, I can't wait to get this out to people. Absolutely. Look forward to it. All right. Then we are out. Woo! Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. 
Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves, and remember to check in on each other.